Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Ron Mars of Green Lantern and Silver Surfer and Marvel vs. DC so-called fame. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, and I love saying that every single time I get to. Very. We want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on then our social medias. I don't, but he does. Go ahead. First off, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like, ski, a follow, ski, a jet ski, or whatever ski. Give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at The Marvelists. You can follow us individually on social media. Myself on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. On Instagram and Twitter at Peter Melnick. And for God knows what reason, I'm on TikTok. I guess to dance or some stupid thing. Like that kid rock song, God Only Knows, right? Pretty much. But Mm. I'm on TikTok at Peter Melnick, but better. And that's because someone took the Peter Melnick name, and they're not even used. Why would you do that? Mm, but there is only one place in the whole wide world, the whole worldwide interwebs, that you can find Eddie Wilson, and that is on Instagram. And that is at... Eddie9193. I don't know why I got on my tiptoes as I said that one. It helped. It helped with the vocals. Yes. But anyway, there's also a wide variety of streaming platforms that you can listen to the show on for all iOS and Android devices, and those include SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, among many others. Those places that you can wrangle an RSS feed. Wrangle it with your hands. Oh, no, that's ring with your hands. But I digress. You can also find us on iTunes, where you can rate, review, subscribe, and share. And remember, when you're on iTunes, keep it five stars, because Eddie, no stars and below, uh. is like the ice cream machine at McDonald's. It just don't work. Just like that joke every single time. Every single time. Oh, you have no idea. But Yes, I do. <laughs> Eddie, on the other end of the tin cannon string, we are joined alongside, well, technically, because you know he's on another part of the state. We're on this part of the state. There's quarantining. I'm over here. Walking <sighs> walking, and talking and, and breathing for us first and foremost. You might be the first moving guest we've had. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined with comic book writer Ron Mars. Ron, good evening. Hey guys, I you know I like to be a moving target, so we're we're doing this ambulatory. As long as it works, and uh, the other noise you hear is the, uh, the the gentle breeze that's accompanying your walk, and that's great. The gentle breeze. This is this is my socially distanced walk. This is Excellent. this is what passes for exercise uh, in the in the era of a gym. You can't go to a gym. Even better, you don't need a mask too. That's great. Uh, it's true. I. Uh, I, I was just at the post office, in fact, and there was a guy in front of me in line without a mask. And I'm like, what, you know, what, what century are you from? Put your mask on. Well, as of this recording on uh, May 28th, had to make sure of that. Yes. It's, it's kind of an uh, interesting thing because they just announced today in New York State, you know, all businesses, they have to have the masks on. And 
Yeah. So, I don't know where I was going with that tangent, but here we are. Well, it's all part of what we have to deal with now as the quote-unquote new normal, but, you know. That's fine. You know, whatever whatever you got to do. You know, keep your brother safe. And I'm not talking about Hulk Hogan-style brother, but I digress. And with this, a lot of us at home are being able to experience a lot of comic books. And just, Ron, yourself, what are you reading right now? Um, you know, honestly, I'm not... I'm not reading that much because my, my schedule is so packed that I, you know, I don't have a whole lot of time. I mean, it feels like, yes, reading comic books should be part of my job, but I feel like I'm not working if I'm sitting at my desk reading a comic book. So, so mostly what I'm going through is, you know, the stack of stuff that I picked up at the store four or five months ago, um, which is just a lot of various and sundry odds and ends, um, Although the uh, the lovely delivery man did just bring me the Batman black and white omnibus today, which is a, is of a size that you could kill a grown man with it. So, um, though I've mo- read most of that stuff, I'll probably be knocking off a few black and white stories every night. Now, what is the name of your comic shop that you frequent? Because a lot of shops right now are, as of this recording, starting to come, starting to reopen, and a lot of us want to, you know, patronize or not patronize, but, you know, become patrons of these stores and help out in any way they can. So, who are you going with, and do they offer the ability to purchase um, online? My uh, my local is called. Uh, Excellent Adventures, which is in Boston Spa, uh, near Saratoga, uh, New York. And uh, the other one I can go to is Earthworld in Albany, which is a, it's a much bigger store. Um, and Earthworld's been doing curbside through most of this whole affair. So, you know, I think everybody's kind of finding their way little by little now that there's new books actually getting into the stores. Um, Hopefully that's kind of a lifeline for a lot of these local shops to uh, keep the doors open. Yeah, myself, I've been, like, this weekend is going to be a three-shop kind of week, and it's like little odds and ends things that, it's not really new books, but, you know, trying to help out any way I can with a lot of these places. And, you know, I know Eddie's doing the same thing. Yeah, I think that, you know, the comics community is very much a community, and I think one one of the real appeals to a local comic shop is that sense of community that the customers get when they're going in on Wednesday or, or now Tuesday if you're going to go in for new books. Um, people, people like that social interaction. One of the real, uh, real benefits that we have uh, because we, we put new stuff out every week. Um, hopefully that continues. Uh, I know uh, there were some concerns that maybe maybe having no new books in the stores for a couple months would lead people to online or ordering from different online sources, downloading digitally. Um, but I think there's something that's very vital about that in-store experience for comics. I know for uh, myself, I've, I've been trying to do it as many ways as possible. I do digital, I do physical, uh, you know, any way to read a comic, I try my damnedest to partake. And, it's funny because there's a lot of creators out there with stuff coming out. Sometimes even to the point where, you know, they have to cancel the book. Like Marvel's doing it a lot lately with certain series where the last two to three issues will be digital only. And it's kind of a bummer, but 
it was bound to happen eventually for certain books, you know? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, we, we as an industry kind of work on an antiquated model. Um, we're selling what are essentially books as periodicals once a month. And that, that 20-page package of a comic is not what um, probably a majority of the public would want. They don't want to have to go to the store once a month to get the latest chapter. They want the whole thing at once. We're a, we're a binge culture in how we watch TV. Um, I think comics are headed in the direction of being not really appreciably different. Um, comics uh, are going to go more towards OGNs, um, more towards getting the whole story at once, which is probably a natural evolution um, because we're not really a newsstand product anymore. Right. Well, in a case like me, it's amassing the comic books physically and then eventually getting to them to read. I just recently, Ron, read all the cosmic powers, one through six, to say, not to say the least of, you know, the Silver Surfer, Dangerous Artifacts, the, the Cosmic Powers Unlimited, Silver Surfer, and the shiny ones, of course, number 75 and 100. Oh, the shiny ones are great. Yeah. Uh, the shiny ones, I, I love to sign the shiny ones, as long as Ron Lim hasn't beaten me to, like... <laughs> The, the, the one shiny spot on Surfer 75 where I can actually sign. Yeah, right on the surfboard underneath, and that's where I have it. That, that's the prime spot. Now, if somebody has, has met Ron Lim before that, before me, uh, you know, I get, I get second fiddle. I get, you know, I get to sign on somebody's face. <laughs> you draw a mustache. Ooh. Um, I, yeah, I should probably I should probably charge for personalization by you know putting mustaches on everybody on that cover. The Silver Surfer stash. Look at that. One of my uh, favorite comic uh, signatures I have is from uh, Tom King, and it's the Batman Elmer Fudd comic from a couple years back. And you see Batman's shadow, and every single time uh, Tom has signed this from people, he'll draw like a little sad face on Batman or like a little angry face, but <laughs> it's. It's cool to see stuff like that because there's like that little personal touch that each creator has on there, you know. So I, I think a silver stash would actually be really good. Well, that's the that's the deep dark secret of all writers is that we wish we could draw. So oh. you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, we wish we could we wish we could do that magic trick of making something appear out of nothing. And on the topic of uh, Tom um, real quick with uh, that signature, I have uh, another one of uh, Batman and Catwoman. And he drew a little stick figure of Batman pushing the two of them together and goes, get a room, you two. <laughs> I, I think it, it's funny because there's so many, you know, things that you could do, especially just with the uniqueness of signatures. Like, when you had your first signature, by the way, what was that feeling like, you know, to put your um, name on someone's book? I can actually remember it. I was at a tiny little show um, in either... In either southeastern New York State or, or perhaps uh, northern New Jersey. It was a little high school show, um, and it was the first, first show I'd ever done. And um, somebody brought me one of my books to sign because I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know enough to, like, bring my own books to sell. Uh, that was not a thing that I even realized you were supposed to do. So I'm just sitting there at a table waiting for somebody to come up to me, and, and sure enough, people bought my book and brought it up to me and asked me to sign it. And then I'm, and then I thought to myself, well, I, I don't, I don't have a signature. What am I supposed to do here? Uh, and so I just, I just did like a quick hieroglyph basically, which 
ended up being what my autograph looks like now, which is, of course, different than, um, different than my signature, which I put on checks and stuff like that. Because somebody mentioned to me, yeah, make sure your autograph is not your signature, because that way, that way lies fraud. Yeah, exactly. And that that show um, was it maybe a few years ago because I remember going to a high school small show in uh, Hawthorne, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. It was, um, and and for what kind of show it was, it was amazing because it was just, you know it was in a high school gym. Yeah. Put on by the high school uh, comic book club, and because it was in that area, they had an amazing guest list. It was like you know Denny O'Neill and Walt Simonson, um, you know. Half of the people that worked on X Men, uh, it was it was a, a pretty high powered show, but you know, it was the kind of thing that nobody even really knew about because yeah, just the, you know it's just these high school kids. If it's the same, then again, then I think I remember. I think that's where I met Bob Wyacek as well, and I think there were representatives or students, or if you wanted of the to Justice sign League. the Justice League, that's exactly right. The Joe Kubert School of Art. Um, yeah, because that's you know that's really a nest of. All the guys who moved to New York, to New York City in the 70s to work in comics, mm-hmm. you know, Simonson and Starlin and Wyatt and all of those guys, um, eventually everybody moved out of the city to the suburbs or even a little further upstate. But um, because all of those guys were in, in the general vicinity, that show got an amazing guest list every year. That's wild to see because I know there's like certain comic shops in that area too. Then they always have like the same core group of people, but it's always a great lineup, like you said. And it's kind of cool to be able to see that, be able to experience like, especially, you know, meeting like living legends in the field that easily in your backyard. Well, it's again, it's that, it's that sense of community that comics engenders. It's, uh, you know your local pros who are um, who are the probably the customers of the shop too, right? I mean that's where we that's where we all go to get our stuff. I mean the the stores up here, um, you know, it's not a big it's not unusual for me to show up and do a signing because they're down the road. Um, I'm happy to go in and do a signing. Uh, and you know the other the other pros that are around. I mean within an hour or so we've got. Jim Starlin and Terry Austin and Barry Windsor Smith, Joe Staten, uh, Paul Harding, the sculptor. There's just a bunch of people um, kind of up and down the Hudson River Valley uh, who have done this for a living for a bunch of years. You mentioned Paul Harding, by the way. Have you been seeing his recent uh, posts on, I think, Twitter and Instagram of the Mar- like Marvel in the 70s that he's working on? Those things are gorgeous. Um, I have, and I was actually at Paul's house on Saturday, so I had to, you know, I had to hear all about it. So, Dude, that's Silver Surfer. Uh, yeah, the, not Silver Surfer. The stuff Warlock that he's doing is great. Um, and now Paul is, you know, Paul is one of my best friends, so I am, uh, I am very hesitant to heap praise upon him, but those, those figures are just amazing. Uh, he's really uh, captured them in ZBrush uh, in the way that, Really, I don't. I don't know that anyone else could. Well, when I saw that incredible Hulk he made, the Hulk looks just like a Sal Buscema uh, illustration come to life. It's incredible. Oh yeah, it's it's. I don't know why sort of working in 3D, working in ZBrush, can give you that. Um, you know, like in that case, 
Staub, you send the field. I mean, everybody yeah. who looked at that, that knows exactly whose Hulk that is. Um, but somehow Paul can get that quality into, into the pieces. Um, and I know he's going to, he's going to keep doing them. It's just, uh, and thank God. I mean, I, it's a pleasure for me to wake up and look at that stuff. Just like it's a pleasure to look at the kind of the little pencil drawings that Mike Mignola is doing every day. Um, yeah. It's, I think, I think that kind of stuff that's going on to social media is, is in some part keeping us all sane because we've got something to look forward to every day. And one of the uh, things that when I was looking through Paul's uh, the 3D modeling and whatnot, the one that really got a kick out of me was the Adam Warlock to the point where he's ha- you know, got the little soul gem glowing on there. It's absolutely gorgeous-looking stuff. And it got me thinking, I'm going through a Marvel Cosmic Read slash read through, reread or whatever, whatever, going through. Richards! But, you stop that. But I'm on uh, the Infinity War era. You know, I'm, I'm visiting some of Starlin's stuff for the first time, revisiting previous stuff. And one of the things that I've been visiting for the first time ever is your run on Silver Surfer. And to follow up Starlin and to follow it up with the same quality is an impressive feat. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the line, but because... I love the character, and you managed to find a way to nail that voice. Well, uh, first, thanks. That's very kind, and I appreciate it. Um, second, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was, I was literally learning on the job as I was doing the job. Um, Silver Surfer was my first gig in comics ever. Silver Surfer was the first script I had ever written, ever. Um, and... Obviously, it all came about because of Jim Starlin and Jim showing me the ropes. And, and certainly, my, my surfer is very much patterned after Jim's surfer. Um, I, you know, I learned at the feet of the master and just tried, to, just tried to not screw it up when they gave me the chance to take it over. And, you know, I've been reading it because you, you mentioned on uh, Twitter like a week or so ago that they're re-releasing one of the runs of Silver Surfer through the Epic Collection, and I believe it's going to... Is it completing your run? No, I think that goes up to 83, 85, something like that. There's still... I, I, I ended up writing just past issue 100, so there's still a, a bit more for them to collect, hopefully. And I think there are probably a few stray, stray issues that aren't that aren't in a collection somewhere. I think, but, Ron, you may have um, to back up a second and start with that beginning of that answer again. We had some yeah, bad wind. I was going to ask. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, if, if, as we go, if there's anything that uh, seems uh, yeah. seems a little too windy, let me know. Um, so uh, give me the question again. Uh, so, like, is this, are those epic books, is that wrapping up your run on Silver Surfer, or is there more to be reprinted? I think there's another year or maybe year and a half, two years of surfer stuff that hasn't been reprinted yet, uh, of, of my surfer stuff at least, because I went up through just after issue 100. So there's, a, there's another chunk, but obviously a lot of the um, Infinity War, Infinity Gauntlet uh, crossovers and tie-ins and all that uh, are, are now get, are either in print or getting back into print. Um, it's, it's just such a shock that, you know, when you when you have two movies that make billions of dollars uh, around, based around those events, somehow they, Marvel finds a way to get those books back into print. And one of the things that I love about that run, like I said, is 
how you are able to follow in the footsteps of Jim Starlin and you're the first big event that you're involved with is the friggin' Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> so it's like, how much at the time did you know what Jim, George, and Ron were getting ready to do as you were writing your tie-in books? Um, nobody knows that the thing you're working on is going to be a big deal before it ever gets released. You know, I think, you know, Jim saw it as a story he was telling, and ultimately, like, like the vast majority of Jim's Marvel stuff, um, it's a Thanos story. It's a big Marvel Universe crossover, but it's ultimately a Thanos story. Um, I think the, you know, the movies give you that sensibility as well. But um, when I was kind of thrown into the middle of it, taking over Surfer with issue 51 because Jim was moving off to write Infinity Gauntlet, and those were, I believe those were double-sized issues. So a, you know, a, six-issue, a six-issue crossover like that turns out to be really like writing 12 issues for Jim. So he had, something had to give because he was bringing the Warlock book back as well. Um, so I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into because it was all new to me. And I've said this before, but the, the, the fact that my first bunch of issues all turned out to be Infinity Gauntlet tie-ins uh, was the best training I could have ever had about working in a shared universe about um, how to tell your story between other stories. Um, it was all hugely, uh, hugely formative for me in terms of, of being a comic book writer, but I didn't know it at the time because I didn't have anything else to compare it to. Now, how did you get onto the uh, Silver Surfer title? Well, I mean, Jim, uh, Jim and I were friends before I ever did comics. Um, I copy edited Jim's first prose novel for him because I was a, um, I just graduated from college uh, and was working at a daily newspaper as a reporter. Um, so, I mean, I was a writer already. I just wasn't writing comics already. And Jim, dis- and Jim suggested to me, hey, did you ever think about writing comics? And, you know, well, duh, everybody thinks about writing comics, but, you know, you don't actually get that chance. Um, but in my case, you know, I'm friends with Jim Starlin. So he allowed me to co-write a few jobs with him, a few surfer issues. And then when um, he decided he was going to step away from surfer, uh, I'm sure with much arm twisting on his part, Marvel offered me, uh, Marvel offered me the reins on the surfer book. Um, and I was probably, geez, I don't know, 23, 24 years old and, you know, hadn't, written any small press stuff or, you know, I, I got to, I, I, you know, I like to say that I, you know, my, my debut was basically like playing for the Yankees. I got to, I got to start uh, writing a monthly title at Marvel, um, which I know makes me incredibly fortunate and I am incredibly grateful uh, every day for the opportunities. Um, but it was also, you know, it was also a time in the industry where books were selling like crazy um, when I took over Surfer, it was selling 300,000 copies a month. And that was sort of a, you know, that wasn't a runaway hit. It was a, it was a the book that was selling really well, but it wasn't like crazy X-Men numbers. So certainly a, a very different time in the industry, and I was in the right time at the right place. And how is that, like, to feel? Like, you mentioned those numbers, though. That high, that many people are reading what you're doing. 
Like, how does that feel? Um, you know, it's, it's like anything else in this business is you don't get a lot of feedback. I mean, my job is basically sitting in a room by myself all day. Uh, and, you know, the people I talk to or the people that I, you know, I do podcasts with or have Skype meetings with or, you know, there's not a whole lot of, it's not like there are 300,000 people in your front yard uh, either, you know, telling you you did a great job or, or maybe having pitchforks and torches. Um, it's, a, it's a very solitary job, and you don't really get a lot of feedback. I was just so excited to be doing the job and uh, so full of, of energy of just, to, just to have the opportunity um, that I, you know, I didn't really give a second thought of, of, you know, what sort of pressure there was. Or, I mean, looking back now, I should have been terrified. I should have been absolutely terrified of the opportunity and of perhaps screwing up the opportunity. But at the time, I didn't know any better. You know, I'm a 23, 24-year-old dummy. Um, and um, comics were just like the next logical thing for me. Would you say that the energy you felt was a cosmic power? Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and that's and that's specifically why we, you know, why we did the Cosmic Powers miniseries because I was so filled with cosmic energy. That was a hell of a story that those six issues too, and it really, like you mentioned about the story being all about Thanos. Well, that's exactly what this thing is about because it's it's what he wants to do. He wants to take up the challenge with the tyrant and go through these others that get their you know their shot as being on the title on the cover as you work your way through with Terax and uh, Jack of Hearts and so on? Well, that, that whole Cosmic Powers miniseries was just, I mean, the reason that came about was everything was selling crazy numbers. Like it was such a boom time in the business, and a, and a good part of it was speculation. Um, you know, people were, people were buying cases of books that they were never going to read. Um, they just put them in the attic and figured they were going to, um, you know, put their put their kids through school on, on selling comics in 15 years. Uh, and I guess we all found out that wasn't going to be the case. Um, now, Ron, that's but, Superman uh, number 75. Um, yeah, we did, you know, we did really well with, uh, we did really well with a lot of those books. I mean, when I initially, like I said, when I initially took over uh, Surfer, it was selling about 300,000 copies an issue. And I think we were doing somewhere between 15 and 18 issues a year. We were doing more. We were doing more than twelve issues, um, and you know you get royalties on those copies. So the royalty money was amazing when I first stepped into the business. But I had guys like like Wrightson and Starlin telling me, "Look, this isn't this isn't the way this goes. There are there are waves and troughs, and right now we're on top of a wave, um, and it's not it's not going to last like this." So. I wasn't one of those guys who broke into, into comics in the early 90s thinking, oh, well, you know, these, these large royalty checks I'm getting are just going to last forever. <laughs> um, I knew that it, was, that it was finite, so, you know, you, you tuck the money away and, uh, and you, you ride it as long as you can. So um, Cosmic Powers turned out to be uh, something. I was, I was actually up at the Marvel offices, and my editor came to me and said, Hey, they want to, you know, they want to put something else into the schedule. Uh, ASAP, um, come up with something. And you know, like that was that was as much direction as I got. Uh, they said, you know, we want six double size issues, 
so they could charge more for it. Um, and we want to do them really fast. So that's why, um, that's why every issue is drawn by someone else. Like there's a new art team on every issue because they were basically all being drawn at the same time. Um, The initial thought was that that Ron Lim was going to draw everything, but Ron Lim was, was frankly, already drawing everything. So um, Ron Lim was about to fall off. uh, Yeah, I mean, he, uh, I mean, Ron did so much work in the 90s at Marvel. uh, I think people actually forgot how, how good he was and just saw him as, well, the workhorse that we can throw anything to. Um, but the, you know, the Cosmic Power stuff came about because um, I had to figure out a way that each issue could have a, some sort of story reason for having a different artist on it. So that's why it ended up being a different, quote-unquote, starring character in every issue. It just made sense to, um, to have a bunch of different artists on it. And then it became a question of, well, where are we gonna where are we gonna get these artists? Uh, so it was um, it was a, I, as I remember it was a mad scramble to get uh, to get those issues done. Uh, but in in retrospect, I've, I've looked at them. Um, there was a I guess it was the Thanos collection a few years ago, where they reprinted all that stuff, and I went, geez, you know, I'm not. I'm not completely embarrassed by all of this. Some of this is actually pretty decent. Well, in in my case, having gotten these, and I don't know if it took me multiple times searching, but I realized, and maybe it's not the first comic to do this, that it has cosmic powers, not across the top of the title, but down the side in kind of like see-through letters. So that kind of threw me off. And also didn't realize it was a limited series, not indicating that on any of the covers. Yeah, like like I said, it was just a... it was. Let's do this thing right now. And the, the weird sort of decorative framework that's on each cover was just because my editor, um, my editor had found that sort of pattern in a book that came from the printers. Where, because this was the era of all sorts of uh, special editions to covers, you know, foil and holofoil and holograms, glow-in-the-dark any sort of any sort of collectible uh, flourishes that they could put on a cover, they did. So my editor now, found uh, that pa- my editor found those patterns and said we should do covers like this. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's actually kind of ugly, but okay, let's 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 figure out a way that that can happen. The other thing too, now, before I forget, with these is the fact, especially in the first one. I think more than any of the other issues, although in two or three other issues, it does do the same technique of, of having bigger splash pages, turning the book the other direction. And I only remember seeing that limitedly, but the first one that really glares out is an issue of Fantastic Four, where the whole issue is, is that way. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we broke some of the rules in the 90s, and perhaps perhaps not, not wisely so, uh, but we did, we did a few of those sideways spreads um, in those cosmic powers issues. I don't think I did that as, as much in the surfer, but it's because we had a bigger page count uh, in those issues, I could blow out the visuals a little bit more in the script. And uh, I think some of it was, was I called for a sideways uh, spread. And sometimes the artist just did it that way because it was kind of in vogue at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things, I'm lucky that I have you on the line for this, I'm going through that whole Infinity reread. Where would you say that Cosmic Powers 
lies in that reading order? Does it go after Infinity War, Crusade, etc.? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> my guess would be somewhere after, uh, probably after, after Gauntlet, but maybe before War. Okay. Um, Cosmic Powers was really done to mostly be a standalone project. Um, although, I guess in retrospect, it spawned Cosmic Powers Unlimited, and you know, it spawned a couple of other different variations of, uh, of, of the title. Um, some of which I worked on, some of which I didn't. I'm just going at my Cosmic Powers Unlimited to read it again. And that's a wraparound cover, so uh, and a really good one at that. That would be where I would have liked to have thought of getting a second copy just to possibly frame the uh, the cover. I think that's probably the Claudio Castellini cover with Thanos and Surfer. It is Thanos and Surfer, right. And uh, like I said, opposite, uh, one on the front, one on the back page, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Castellini, just he was the obvious he was the obvious guy to start doing those covers because his uh, his cosmic stuff was amazing. He was very much a disciple of John Buscema in terms of the way he drew his surfer, um, and you know, I guess being being brutally honest about it, is Claudio is very meticulous, which turns into very slow. So actually, having him do interior pages, you were going to wait for him. You get a cover a little bit quicker. Now. When you eventually ended up leaving, Mar- were you actually were you working on Green Lantern the same exact time you were working on Surfer? Yeah, I think I think I was working on Green Lantern uh, and Surfer and a book and image at the same time. Um, wow, uh, like monthly, which which is unheard of these days. You're you're you're, you're really you know basically not allowed to do that anymore. Um, but I was, yeah, in, in those days it was. It was a little more common for you to be able to, to work both sides of the street at the same time. And with that Green Lantern run, that is one of the most absolutely beloved runs. And it's, it's funny for me because, you know, I'm a graphic designer. I absolutely love Kyle Rayner. So there's that, you know, little connection in there for me with that. And for, how, did, how did you decide on that as the profession for Kyle Rayner? Well, actually, my... Uh... My Green Lantern run really came about because of my Silver Surfer work, because the editors at Green Lan- the editors at DC that had Green Lantern in their office um, were reading my Surfer stuff. So when they decided that uh, there was going to be a new direction for the title, uh, I was the guy they called, um, and I had done done a few short stories for Green Lantern Corps Quarterly. So I, you know, there was a relationship there, um, and I had done a bit of work for him. But certainly, this Green Lantern was my first uh, was my first DC monthly. And it's you know with the character of Green Lantern, there's just something about the connection between Surfer and Green Lantern. You know, of course, space obviously, but it's that whole element that you know you're linked to these characters forever, and that connection between the two. What do you see as the big similarity other than space with the two characters? Well, I guess it's, you know, they, they both sort of have this unlimited power, really. Um, uh, and they're both, to a great extent, they're kind of, they're kind of space opera uh, stories. Um, certainly, you know, the, the first surfer run where he was, he was stuck on Earth and it was uh, Stan Lee and John Buscema doing kind of parables and, and really using this alien character to examine what was going on on Earth. Uh, was ultimately great stuff, but it was completely different from what I did in the book, which was mostly a, 
which was mostly an outer space book. Um, then, of course, when I, when I got Green Lantern, um, we dismantled all the space stuff, and it, and it turned into much more, uh, not exclusively, but much more of, a, of an Earthbound book uh, because uh, we were, you know, we were essentially doing, uh, we were essentially doing Spider-Man with a Green Lantern ring. That was, that was really my vision of the character, is I wanted to do kind of that everyman archetype that, uh, that Peter Parker slash Spider-Man represents. With with this you know this greatest this magic ring this this greatest weapon in the galaxy um, because we you know obviously if the decision was made by DC editorial to to go in a different direction with Green Lantern to remove Hal as the lead character to get rid of the core and the Guardians and all of that stuff um, I wanted to make sure that the character we were bringing in to replace Hal as the lead in the book was going to be as different from Hal as possible. Um, because if, you know, if you were just going to do, you know, Hal Jordan Light is the lead, why did you bother to change the, why did you bother to change the book in the first place? So um, Kyle was very much um, my attempt to bring more of a Marvel-style character into the DC universe. Eddie? Well, was the decision by whoever it took to, to do this with respect to changing the character? Was it that the title was not doing as well? We got to do something to really inject something that's going to bring back the, the readers up to this point and not make it hell. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, ultimately most comic publishing decisions are, are uh, most, but not all are, are made because of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Green Lantern had been selling like hotcakes, there never would have been a change. Um, but the the sales were not great. The the title was seen as sort of moribund. I think there was some regret on DC's part that um, you know they had made Hal into um, your your father's Green Lantern, basically with the mm-hmm. with the gray temples and and he just wasn't um, he wasn't seen as young and vital anymore by the by the audience. So the decision was made to um, go in a completely different direction. And certainly that decision was made by DC Editorial, not me, um, because you as, you, know, you as the freelancer don't get to come in and, uh, and decide to, you know, to toss away a franchise lead character and replace him with your own. That, those decisions come from on high. So um, the decision to replace Hal was, was made by DC Editorial, and then the creation of Kyle was really left up to me and Daryl Banks and Kevin Dooley, the editor, the editor of the book. And then we have the cross, of course, between Green Lantern and Silver Surfer for that 1996 thing, I think, which came right before the uh, all-access crossover. Yeah, it was, um, it was the era of, of Marvel and DC playing nice with each other and doing crossovers, uh, doing a number of crossovers. Uh, so because I was writing both titles, uh, that seemed to be a very obvious one to do. Um, so, it, you know, it got approved pretty quickly. I, I went to D.C. and said, hey, you know, let's do Green Lantern Surfer. Uh, and I don't, I don't think there was even a, a great deal of discussion about it. It was just, oh, well, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do that. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge... Um, it wasn't a huge to-do over. It was just like the next crossover in the series. And then while we were working on it, um, the Marvel versus DC crossover came up, and uh, that was offered to me. And 
obviously that's the sort of job you take without even thinking about it. Um, and so the, the very end of the Green Lantern Silver Surfer, uh, the last page or two, kind of serves as a prelude to, to how uh, Marvel vs. DC came about. Um, in some ways, like if you, if you read the Green Lantern Silver Surfer book now, without any knowledge that it, it hinted at um, Marvel vs. DC, the last page or two really doesn't make any sense. Uh, the last page or two just seemed completely random. Um, but at the time, you know, everybody sort of went, oh, it's, you know, this is leading somewhere, and then Marvel vs. DC was announced, and, um, and we, picked up, uh, we picked up some of that, uh, some of those story points uh, in the first issue of Marvel vs. DC. Now, a lot of come, you know, a lot of people are talking online, and again, as of this recording, May twenty eighth, twenty twenty, we don't know what's going to happen, but a lot of people have been, you know, speculating: could maybe we see a Marvel DC crossover down the line? Because you know, with the state of the comic industry right now, due to COVID nineteen, it's you know, it's affecting the comic industry like very heavily. You know, a lot of comic shops are closing, and this could be the it could be the big boost that could help the comic industry. Do you see a Marvel versus DC crossover happening again some almost, 20, uh, almost 25 years to the point? Man, I hope so. I mean, obviously, uh, obviously it would do a lot of people a lot of good, um, and I hope it happens. Uh, the real, um, to me, the real sticking point of, of uh, you know, what, what we did 25 years ago and what opportunities are there now um, is the fact that uh, the Marvel and DC cinematic universes and, and TV universes really have, uh, have sprung into place since then. Um, so when we were doing, um, when we were doing these crossovers, uh, these were just comic book characters. I mean, nobody, uh, nobody except the, the hardcore comics fans knew who the hell Iron Man was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iron Man was a Black Sabbath song to 98% of the public. Um, now, of course, everybody knows who Iron Man is. Uh, so it's a different landscape, and these character franchises are worth literally billions, uh, whereas they weren't, uh, they didn't carry that kind of cachet or value back then we were just we were just doing comic book stories um so um the fact that marvel's owned by disney um dc is owned by warner brothers which is owned by at&t just means there are a lot more um there are a lot more complications to actually pulling off something like that uh but i i wholeheartedly hope it happens um i hope our marvel versus dc crossover and the amalgam books and all that stuff can actually come back into print at some point um, because, you, you know, unless you find them in a used bookstore, you're really not going to find that stuff. Uh, there's, there are no new printings of it. And as far as I know, there's no, there's no plans for new printings of it. And a lot of those Marvel versus DC amalgam books, not the individual issues, but the reprints go for way, way, way too much. Like, I think it's 50 to 60 a volume. Yeah, I mean, I wish... I wish I had been smart enough to hang on to, you know, all of the trade paperbacks of that stuff that, you know, showed up in comp boxes at my house. Uh, but, you know, 
I would I would give them out to kids on Halloween. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I might have I might have like one copy of Marvel vs. DC for me, uh, but all the rest of it's gone, unfortunately. Jeez, no candy at the Mars house. I mean, that is a candy company, but for crying out loud. Uh, Ron, how yeah, many times you have you heard that joke before? Well, not from me. <laughs> come get come get comics at my house. Jeez, that's, uh, Jeez, that's plus, a, And plus, plus you just... Obviously, made me, we made sure you got candy, too. Yeah, okay. All right. How, by the way, I know we had you on the show, I want to say, last year during Hudson Valley Comic Con. Yeah, I, I, now, now that you reminded me, I remember the last time when we talked, uh, which is... You know, that's where I grew up. Hudson Valley is where I grew up. So that was really the first time I've done a Comic-Con kind of in my old neighborhood. Well, I think during the interview I had asked, but because, you know, the whole Stanley theory of everyone, something could be their first, this might be somebody's first episode listening to the show. How did Marvel versus DC come around? Um, you know, we talked about, you know, surfers selling 300,000 copies a month. Um, after that period, mid '90s, the market crashed. All that that speculator boom, uh, uh, you know, the speculator boom turned into a bust. It turned into a crater, and a lot of stores were hurting. A lot of stores were in uh, bad shape because they had overordered books, and suddenly, all those uh, all those speculator buyers um, had disappeared. Uh, so. They were, they were stuck with case upon case of uh, X-Men number one and X-Force number one and uh, Turok Chromian covers and um, what else? Oh, Reign of the Superman stuff. So uh, a lot of stores had overextended themselves. We're now stuck with a lot of product they couldn't sell, and it was a grim time in the business. Orders went down uh, went down exponentially. So uh, Marvel and DC got together and cooked up Marvel versus DC as a way to get, uh, to get a product into the direct market shops that would attract a lot of buyers back into the shops. Um, and the obvious way to do that was, well, have the Marvel and DC universes meet for meet, you know, meet in a large uh, way beyond the, you know, crossovers here and there that had been done in the past, um, but really do a, a large-scale crossover, um, get that product into shops as quickly as possible to, to help keep the shops open. And uh, that was, I mean, it was, a, it was a dream come true sort of project for me because this is, this is the kind of story that everybody, um, that everybody thinks about, well, I'd like to tell that story when you're 10 years old. Uh, it's the dream job of all dream jobs. Um, and I got a call from Mike Carlin at DC one day and he said, uh, you can't tell anybody what I'm about to tell you, but we're going to do a big crossover with Marvel. We want you to write, we want you to be one of two writers on it. Um, and obviously I said, you know, where do I sign up? You know, I didn't, I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't have to think about it at all. Um, and I can remember going to uh, going to a movie that night with a buddy, and feeling like I had the coolest secret in the world, but I couldn't tell anybody. That's tremendous. Yeah, no question. Um, and then, and then, you know, it just it was a 
it was a secret project for a while. The first, the first meeting that we had about Marvel versus DC was at Mark Grunewald's apartment, who was the, the Marvel editor on the project. Um, we met at uh, Mark's apartment in uh, about 110th Street in Manhattan um, because they didn't want us meeting in the offices because they didn't want anybody from either office to... Um, like, they, if we met at DC, they didn't want people wondering why Mark was there. And if we met at Marvel, they didn't want anybody wondering why Mike Carlin was in the office. Uh, so it was a it was a very loose-lipped, think ship kind of thing. Um, right. Where the first few meetings we had were off-site. And, uh, and the whole thing had been really... Uh, the, the big, broad strokes of it had been, uh, like, which... Uh, the, the universes were going to come together and the fact that the amalgam books were going to come out of it. Um, that was already in place. So what our meetings were about was uh, figuring out who was going to fight who and kind of the overall mechanics of getting the characters together. Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost. Others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And... I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on then our social media. Yeah, but next time, unusual rigmarole. Go ahead. Oh, you stop that. Go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like ski on there. Go on the Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. You can also find us individually on social media. I'm on a crap ton of stuff. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Peter Melnick. I'm on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. I'm on TikTok for God knows the reason why, but that's at Peter Melnick, but better. Yes, really. And on top of that, we have somebody else in this tandem that is on social media, and his name is E. Wilson, and you can find him only on one place on inter- the internet, yeah. not internet, the internet, the IG, Instagram, oh, really? Yeah. Anyway, Instagram at Eddie9193. You can also listen to us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, including TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, and they're all available for all iOS and Android devices. Oh yeah, we're on iTunes as well. Uh-huh. Rate, review, subscribe. And be sure to share the show on social media. But with iTunes, be sure to keep it five stars, five stars, five stars, five stars, five stars, five stars. Nope. And remember, four stars and below. Nope. Eddie? Nope. Eddie? Don't cut it. Just like the ice cream machine at McDonald's, it just does not no, work. No, just like the four out of five dentist survey. How about that one? Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined with comic book writer Ron Mars. Welcome back to our interview with Ron Mars. Ron's going to continue by talking about Amalgam Comics imprint, talking about the shared Marvel DC stuff, and then move on to more with Peter and Eddie. So if you missed the first part, go back and watch that first. This is a continuation of the last interview. And we're going to start with what we ended on last time to kind of give people a refresher. 
I actually found out about the amalgam stuff at uh, Grunewald's apartment because they had that part of it figured out. And when we got down the list to uh, Dr. Strangefate being one of the books, I immediately said, I have to write that book. And, and of course, they went, eh, okay, we don't care. Uh, so, I mean, I was absolutely thrilled to, to get that book. And I think all of them turned out great. They all had a little bit different flavor to them. And um, the approach that we were allowed to do, which was to sort of act like there had been a hundred issues already with these characters and that there were going to be a hundred more afterwards, um, just allowed us to, you know, have inside jokes and play with the characters and play with the, the different amalgamations of the, of the two universes. Um, I, I know we did, I think we did two sets of the amalgam books and they were all just a, just a huge amount of fun. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was a rare time of, of complete detente between DC and Marvel. Um, and the editorial staffs were great, uh, dealing with getting everything approved. Uh, everybody sort of knew that this was a, uh, kind of serious situation for the comics business and that, um, being territorial or, or, uh, being overly fussy about what we could do and what we couldn't do, um, was just not going to be allowed. And, you know, they're like, there are so many different characters and different stories that were told through the Amalgam universe. You know, you have Amazon, you have the JLX, and, of course, you have Mark Wade, or, well, actually, Malevolent Mark Wade and Dauntless Dave Gibbons, Super Soldier, and just fantastic stuff. And, by the way, I have the book in hand. That's why. So, uh, Super Soldier was one of my favorites. I also really loved... Um, Spider-Boy that uh, Carl Kiesel and Ladron did. Uh, Carl was writing Superboy at the time, and uh, I just thought that the combination of Spider-Man and Superboy was, was great. The art was terrific, and Carl is such a fun writer who really captures the sort of over-the-top essence of a lot of what Kirby's writing was like. Um, that, that, to me, is one of, the, one of the real gems of the last, I don't know, 25 years. And what's really funny about the uh, the, super, or the Spider Boy run, or the Spider Boy issues and everything, if you go to you know your average uh, comic convention, there's going to be at least one person selling knockoff Lego minifigures, and they will do as many deep cuts, deep pulls of characters, and Spider Boy is one of them. You can get a little knockoff Spider Boy minifigure, and it's kind of cool to see that that you know run had that much of an effect on people where they even immortalized it as a little, you know, minifigure. Well, I think that stuff, you know, the Marvel versus D stuff, DC stuff, the amalgam stuff, um, it was really kind of, uh, if you were, if you were the right age for that stuff, I think for a lot of people, it was the, it was the biggest thing in your life. It was just a, a huge bombshell going off. Um, and I mean, obviously I, at conventions, I sign a lot of Marvel versus DC books. I sign a lot of Dr. Strange Fates. Um, and it's all, it's all generally, uh, people in the same age range. And it's people who, who, you know, discovered those books at that magic age of 12 or 13 and really, um, and really that stuff stayed with them. Uh, I think we, I think we, we succeeded in galvanizing a new generation of fans by, by doing that kind of story uh, at that time. I'm 31 years old, and like that's you know it came for me at the right time as well. And it's it's just something that 
when I remember seeing that back in 1996, I was captivated just by... I, I picked up issue number three. That was the only one I picked up until I was older and, you know, had a little bit more money to be able to do so. Came across all the other issues, but that number three where you see Superman fighting the Hulk and then all that whole Donnybrook is happening in the background, it's... Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. It's just that thing of seeing that and you're like, oh my God, what is this? I have to see this. How can this happen? How can this be real? Uh, you know, I think... Uh, I think all of us working on the book had that sensibility to a certain extent uh, of how could, how could we actually be doing this? This is not like a real thing that you used to do. Um, and, but, you know, you're also mentioning about the whole aspect of pretending that there's, you know, 100 issues of continuity and whatnot. That whole element, like, you have Dark Claw. And then what I loved about that was when the second wave of Amalgam books came out, you guys brought Dark Claw back, but as Dark Claw Adventures. So you, in that pretend amalgam universe, there's a television network showing a Dark Claw animated series, and there's the tie-in comic book. It was amazing to see that. Um, yeah, it was just, it was, a, it was a very fun era of comics. I think, uh, I, I think sometimes the 90s get a bad rap as um, the, the grim and gritty era, and certainly... We had a bunch of that. Uh, we had too much of that. But we also had just a, just a tremendous bunch of fun comics uh, that I think helped, uh, helped plant the seed for uh, a new generation of comics readers. It's kind of funny because, yeah, I am in absolute agreement with you on that about how that era of the 90s is perceived as that. But there is so much great stuff. And I realize, yes, I'm a Marvel guy, and I realize there's going to be people going, oh, how dare you, but DC had some of the absolute best stuff in the 1990s, and when you're looking at you know that era, avoiding the grim, dark kind of comics, you look at your run on Green Lantern, you look at Grant Morrison's JLA run, you know, Starman by James Robinson, DC was knocking it out of the park at the time, and just hit after hit of solid content being released, you know, every month at the comic book stands. Yeah, and I mean, certainly I'm, I'm not unbiased, uh, having been one of the people working on stuff in that era, uh, for, particularly for DC, because I had, by that point I had kind of migrated over to DC more full-time. Um, you know, it, it was, uh, I always look forward to getting the comp box, uh, because it had uh, Grant's Green, uh, Grant's JLA and Wade Slash and uh, James and Tony's Starman. Uh, there's there's a bunch of books that came out of that era that I am still really really fond of. Yeah, Kingdom Come with uh, Wade and uh, Alex. Just yeah, amazing stuff. Ron, just coming at it from a little different angle. Um, part of what you said, you know, just coming into comics at a certain age for Amalgam and stuff. If you, as a kid, had no idea who belonged where, I mean, I know majority of this was that, oh, who are they going to put up DC against Marvel? What characters are going to put up against who? But if you didn't know one from the other, couldn't that kind of, kind of confuse some kids to know, well, this one should be on DC's banner and this one should be Marvel? I don't know if that came about anywhere along the line or you heard about. Um, yeah, I mean, this was obviously pre-Wikipedia, right? So, yeah. um you couldn't go just you couldn't just look up this stuff um 
I think part of you know part of uh, the job on the on the miniseries was to make sure that um, that if somebody had never read a Marvel or DC comic but got sort of uh, swept up in all this and wanted to wanted to jump in, that they would have uh, they they wouldn't have a hard time figuring out who was who and which character was from which universe. Um, I, I you know for my purposes, I wanted to be sure that. Um, none of this stuff became so inside baseball that you had to have been reading comics for 20 years to understand what was going on. Exactly, right. Uh, the only thing that messes was, me up, just going off now on a tangent, I'm sorry, but some characters that you knew were under this banner, like Marvel, for example. Well, what's Red Sonja doing as a Dynamite character, um, for example? But there's other things that go on in there, and that leads me to looking at another one, which is Turok under Dynamite that you did for a few issues last year. And I said, Turok, wait a minute, I think I have some DC's 20-cent comic book from the 70s, and, and I don't know what it took to bring this character back, who's kind of like a, uh, a Conan-slash-Tarzan type character, I, I would think. Um, well, you know, like, uh, I, guess, I guess kids, kids are generally not going to understand the, you know, the notion of licensed characters and different publishers getting different rights and all that, but... Um, Look to me if you you know if you like Conan, the original Marvel stuff or the the Dark Horse stuff, which I was able to you know take part in for Conan, and now it's back at Marvel. I mean it's all it's all the same stuff. It's all it's all good comics. Um, so uh, Red Sonja the same thing. Uh, although obviously uh, I believe Dynamite owns Red Sonja now, so she's not going anywhere. Uh, uh, and I, that that was also an itch I got to scratch uh, to to make sure that I got to, you know, write at least one Red Sonja story. And then, you know, Turok came about last year. Um, and that was also for me a very, you know, a, a very welcome opportunity to, to play with a toy that I had first seen as a kid and now get to, you know, get to put my spin on it. And, you know, you, with Turok, by the way, it's kind of funny to see there are so many people that know Turok as a comic book character, but people like myself, whose first introduction to the character was the Turok video games from the 1990s. And Oh, yeah, I think have there are a lot of people that, that um, first experienced that game, uh, first experienced the, the property through that game. It's absolutely crazy. And have you, like, ever, have you ever encountered fans who will have you sign the book and they go, oh, I just love that video game. You're doing such a great job. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. People, uh, I would say probably maybe 50-50, uh, people who talked about the video game and, and people who talked about the, like the valiant iteration of Turok. Um, and then, you know, once in a while I would get somebody that would come up and want to talk about the Dell version of Turok, which is where it originated. Um, it was, uh, and I, I went back and read some of that real early Turok stuff to, to just get a bit of all the flavors. And, you know, in my, in my arc on Turok, I wanted to make sure that, I kind of paid homage to all of those different eras of Turok, um, the video game, uh, the different, uh, the different versions that um, Dynamite had done, the original stuff. Um, so they're all kind of in there to a certain extent. I didn't, I didn't want to put the lie to anything, uh, but I wanted to do my own take on it as well. Um, and you know, essentially, that was just a, you know, that was the chance that what I get to do a book with dinosaurs. Okay, I'm in. Now, before we wrap this episode up, we have a couple listener questions. Eddie? Let me go and look those up, but I also think I ran into one or two other questions for 
that I'm thinking of for you, Ron. And uh, one of them is you had a long run with Image, especially with the Witchblade character. I don't know if there was a certain set of uh, circumstances other than what's my next job to uh, to work on, but uh, I want to touch on that a little bit. Sure. I uh, I ended up taking over Witchblade when I uh, when I left CrossGen Comics, which was an early 2000s imprint um, that was based in Tampa, Florida, and had all of us on staff. Uh, had you know had the vast majority of the artists and all the writers as staff employees working working in a studio. Um, you know, it's like a it's like a real job. You showed up in the morning and you went home in the uh, in the evening, and you know you got paid a salary. It was a whole different way of doing comics, and it was ultimately a failure. Uh, they ran out of money, but um, I'm very, very proud of most of the material that we did there. So when that, when that all came apart, I, um, uh, you know, I obviously had to go back to freelance. Uh, and and thankfully, when you know when rumors of CrossGen's demise started to circulate, um, and I I had a sense of, uh, you know, uh, I. I had a sense that the, the wind was blowing in the wrong direction. I was going to have to, uh, I was going to have to pull the ripcord. Um, when those rumors started to circulate, I had other publishers call me and say, "Well, if you need a landing spot, uh, we'd like to have you do some stuff," which was a which was a huge relief. Um, you know, being uh, being exclusive to a place and being on staff, and then all of a sudden looking at, "Oh wait, I'm not going to have a job anymore." is is pretty daunting. So having friends at other publishers reach out to me and and you know, sort of, um, you know, give me the sense that I was I was going to be I was going to have some work waiting for me was uh, was a huge huge relief. Uh, and one of the places that that reached out was uh, Top Cow. Uh, Jim McLaughlin was the editor in chief at the time, and you know, he kind of said, "What do you want to do for us?" And so I ended up doing some doing some darkness issues as kind of a you know as kind of a tryout to see how we liked each other, and it went went great. I enjoyed writing the darkness, and then. They ultimately asked me to take over Witchblade, and uh, Witchblade was never a book that I had um, that I had really read to any great extent. So I knew the concept and I knew the character, but I didn't I didn't know anything else. And um, they they sent me a big box of, of every Witchblade book that they had published, and uh, I sat there and read them for a few days, and and kind of came to uh, came to the thought of what I would want to do with the character and pitch them that idea, which was that, you know, all of this is cool and I like the generational aspect and the, the, the New York City cop aspect is great, but, you know, I tend to write from, from character first and, and I didn't feel like, no pun intended, but uh, the character of Sarah Pazzini had been fleshed out uh, as completely as she needed to be. So that was my approach to the book was to make, uh, was to make you care about character, to make you care about the character of Sarah Pazzini, mm-hmm. um, whether she had the witchblade or you know what was going on or, or what state of undress she was in. So you know I said I don't really want to do the you know the kind of stories where her you know uh, this witchblade uh, turns into a metal bikini and she's you know she's running around in this uh, in this you know sort of semi state of undress. Um, there can certainly be sexy parts to the book, and I'm not at all opposed to that. But I'd like to make this a little bit more of a um, adventure story where she's in armor and flesh out the mythology of all this thing. And to their credit, Top Cow was amazing. They were just 
you know, said, they said, sure, take the book, do what you want to do with it. Um, you know, do, do the kind of stories you want to do. And that was absolutely the last time we ever discussed, well, you know, should she be sexy? What, you know, what, what should the costume look like? Um, they just let me and the artists that I work with on the book, um, and I was fortunate enough to work with a number of terrific artists, uh, Mike Choi, Adriana Mello, uh, Steve on stage, and I did uh, a nice long run on it. Um, and it just, Butchblade turned out to be an amazing fit for the kind of stories I do and, and the, the, the character and the, um, the concept turned out to be very flexible in terms of the kind of stories you could do with it. Um, and I ended up telling police stories, horror stories, superhero stories, uh, fantasy stories. It was very malleable in terms of, of the genres that you could cover with the concept. And I think I've actually written more Witchblade issues than anything else in my career. It's probably you know, hmm. up around 100. So I think sometimes that's the way it works out is that the book that you least expect to be the right fit um, turns out to be exactly the right fit. The other thing I wanted to ask too, Ron, before we get into the questions on Facebook is, and I think you might have said it when we spoke at uh, Hudson Valley Comic Con, is that you were, I think you said you were a space guy, and it just it just happened to fit wonderfully that you know you're writing about space, whether it's Green Lantern or Silver Surfer and the cosmos and that kind of stuff. Uh, or I'm or my way off the mark here. No, I you know like I I grew up, um, you know I grew up in the era when we were still. Uh, when we we're still sending people into space, uh, you know, so the the space race and all that stuff, um, I was sort of at the very tail end of it. Um, I can kind of remember being, I don't know, three or four years old and watching watching uh, Neil Armstrong walk on the moon uh, in my in my living room. Uh, I have a very faint memory of what that image was like, um, but uh, you know, so I was I was. I was aware for, you know, the, the later, um, the later moon missions and then obviously the uh, space shuttles and all that kind of stuff. So I've always been a fan of, of the real actual space exploration. And, you know, I was, I was watching the, the dragon launch yesterday until they scrubbed it. It was about 20 minutes, about 20 minutes to go, uh, online. So I'm a, I'm a fan of all that space stuff, but it's not like I, I got into comics telling my, you know, telling myself, you know, your, your mission is to tell cosmic stories. Yeah, um, right. That's, that's just the way it, that's just the way it worked out. I mean, Silver Surfer was the first gig I was offered. So that's kind of what, um, I became known for, for a while. And then Green Lantern also being a, a space kind of franchise, uh, certainly early in my career, uh, kind of branded me with that, which I have, I have no problem with, you, you know, you, you are what your credits are. Part of um, the, yeah. Part of, but uh, I, but I, you know, I've always been, I've always been interested in telling as many different kinds of stories in as many different genres as possible. Yeah, part of what the question I was going to say was: uh, Were you a space major, a science major, rather in uh, in in school growing up and stuff like that? Or you, you know, you had that natural inclination to want to do that, or you know, you went into writing, so you must have had the knack or the idea that you wanted to put pen to paper and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I I only knew I didn't want to do math. I mean, that was. Yeah. That was the that was the biggest thing. Uh, I I actually always loved my science classes because they um, uh, they they let my imagination run. 
you know, I loved doing astronomy class and all that kind of stuff in, in high school. Um, but yeah, obviously the stuff that I excelled at was, was English and history, um, math, not so much. So my, my career path was sort of laid out in front of me that, um, look, you know, I was the guy that, I was the guy that other kids came to, to help them punch up their book reports so they could, you know, move from a C to a B, or if they, if they really wanted a good grade, they would just pay me to write their book report. Um, so that was, you know, that was, uh, writing was something I could always do. It never occurred to me to, to pursue any other career. Um, I just didn't know it was going to be comics writing, but obviously I'm, I'm hugely thankful that that's the way it turned out. And also on a side note, I realized in looking at your bio that we're pretty close in age. I think I got you about, about a couple of months. And I do have a vague remembrance of the moon landing. And when it happened, if I'm not mistaken, sitting in the living room in the Bronx there with my younger brother and my parents in the black and white TV, is that, from what I recall, when it happened, we saw it on TV, it poured cats and dogs, raining like crazy. And my mom always making a, a comparison to saying, because this was just so mind-boggling that she thought that, you know, this was not something that we should do. God was upset. He made it rain like crazy kind of thing. <laughs> and I don't, I don't remember the weather at all. I just remember... Uh, you know, I remember that in those grainy black and white images uh, of Neil walking around on the moon, but also uh, like everybody around me, you know, and the, uh, my older brother and sister and my parents, certainly like this was obviously a big deal, but I didn't understand why it was a big deal. Yeah, right. Like I was I was not old enough to grasp that, that that was the moon, like the actual moon. And there was a dude up there right now. <laughs> All right. That is not at all cheese on there. Speaking of dude, let's let's see what we have on the Facebook questions. Uh, Patricio Robayo, friend of the show, and and personally somewhat too. Uh, sort of a multi-part question: What is your process for writing? What software do you use? And do you have a different mindset when you write for different companies? Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, etc. Um, no, the the so to take it in reverse order, I guess. Uh, the the mindset is always the same. The mindset is is you know tell the best story you can tell within the parameters that you're given, and certainly for different jobs there are different parameters, uh, different editorial constraints, uh, different goals that you you need to uh, fulfill. Um, but as far as um, there being any great difference between one company or another, there really isn't. The the biggest difference is um, editor to editor. Uh, you. I think you, you tend to find the editors that you click with and the, the, uh, the editors who uh, are most conducive to the way you work, and you tend to stick with those editors. Uh, there are editors who want to be very involved in the process. There are editors who, who want to just let you go off on your own and do the, do the job. I, I think writers have to find um, which, which, which editor they vibe with, which, which kind of editorial um, direction and control really uh, works for you. Um, and I guess I've been doing this long enough that, you know, look, tell me what you want and tell me where the target is and, you know, leave me alone for a few weeks and I'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can, you know, uh, and, and, if the, and if the target changes, let me know ahead of time and, and I will do my best to uh, fulfill that. It's, uh, uh, you know, you are, you are ultimately, um, you're ultimately serving a few masters. You're serving that specific editor you're serving the overall company that owns the characters, and you are absolutely serving yourself. Um, you know, first and foremost, I try to tell stories that I enjoy, 
and that I would want to read because I'm the only audience whose taste I'm 100% sure of. Um, so my goal is to always tell a story that I would be interested in reading, and then you hope everybody else comes along for the ride. Um, so uh, as far as software, it's just Microsoft Word. There's, you know, I don't use any kind of screenwriting software. I don't, you know, I don't use Scrivener or anything like that. It's just, you know, I keep it as simple as possible, and I, I, I use the same script format that Starlin taught me 30 years ago, which is uh, as simple as it can be, uh, fairly large type on the page so that the artist who is looking at it uh, is, you know, is, is not straining to read what the hell you wrote. Um, you know, I usually, to get really technical about it, I usually uh, put, the, put the text on my scripts at 14 point. Um, and I've, I've seen some, some writers who use like 10 point on their scripts. And I'm just like, you know, artists will hunt you down and kill you <laughs> because, you know, because, you know, you, you take a week to write the script. The artist has to live with it for four weeks or five weeks or six weeks. So make their job easier. Don't make them hunt for what they're supposed to be drawing. Um, so uh, my, my script format is, is very simple. It's just Microsoft Word and it's, you know, page by page with a, with a page break in between each page. And panel by panel with the with the dialogue written in, um, and then I go back through uh, once the art is drawn and rewrite all the dialogue so that it fits the art, um, both in terms of the actual space and uh, the, the actual space uh, on the page, as well as uh, making sure that uh, the the dialogue, the text, uh, caption boxes, the balloons, all of that um, reflects what's actually drawn on the page rather than what I expected to be drawn on the page when I wrote the script. So um, it's kind of a two-step process, uh, but I think it, it comes out, the, the finished product comes out a lot better if you back if you go back in and sort of polish everything once the art is drawn. Um, and then uh, my process is um, kind of the same as it's always been, which is I, you know, you start on page one and I write, one through 20 or 22 or however many pages I have down the side of a piece of paper in my, in the same notebook that I've been, same leather bound notebook that I've been, you know, replacing uh, pads of paper in for probably 28 years or something like that. Uh, write the numbers down the side of the page and I figure out what each beat uh, on each page is. You know, each page has to serve a purpose in the story. Each page has to move the story forward. Um, I figure out what what each of those beats is going to be on each page, um, and then go and then I start back at page one and uh, and break down each page into panels. And obviously, at that point in the process, it's all pretty malleable. It's all pretty um, you know things move things move onto different pages. Um, a sequence that you thought was going to take four pages might take five pages and you have to steal a page from somewhere else. Uh, it's all fairly, um, it's all fairly adjustable at that point. Um, so, uh, and then, and then I go back in and, and write dialogue. Okay. Next one up from Christopher Maurer. And regarding Kyle, uh, it says surprised at the longevity of Kyle versus his contemporaries of the time, like Gene Paul Valley or any of the replacement Superman, I guess just some feedback on that. 
Um, well, the difference there was that um, certainly uh, Batman being replaced by uh, Jean-Paul and uh, Superman being, uh, well, not replaced, but maybe impersonated by the, by the four uh, Superman and Reign of Superman, those were, um, those were storylines that were designed to be uh, finite. It wasn't like Jean-Paul Valley was going to take over for Batman forever. Um, in both the case of uh, Bane taking, breaking Batman's back and the death of Superman, those were stories that were, you know, that were going to ultimately come back to where they started. They were going to come back to um, Bruce Wayne being Batman and Clark Kent being Superman. Uh, in the case of the case of Kyle, the, the plan was not to bring Hal Jordan back. Uh, uh, at least if, if there was ever a plan to bring Hal Jordan back, nobody ever told me about it. Uh, we didn't, we didn't build a backdoor into the story to, um, to reverse everything if it didn't work out as planned. Um, so, um, so I think Kyle's still around because we got, we got 10 years where he was the guy he was, you know, he was the green lantern and certainly everything is, you know, Everything is kind of back to uh, the more uh, cosmic guardians of the guardians of the universe and um, a, a huge Green Lantern core. Uh, you know, Green Lantern is a very flexible franchise in that you can tell uh, cop stories and space stories and superhero stories and all of that stuff is is fair game. Um, but I think you know Kyle was a little different than some of the other. Uh, quote-unquote replacement characters because, uh, you know, we, we treated him very much as permanent. It, you know, it was, not a, it was not a gimmick. It was not a, uh, it was not a finite uh, storyline. It was just the next storyline that we were doing, and it just kept going on. Has Kyle been adapted in any other form of media? Because I'm drawing a blank on that right now. Uh, he was in the Superman animated series. Okay, I thought so, because I know I've never seen him in Justice League cartoon or Unlimited or anything else, but it's because yeah, I didn't know he was in, in that. The, he was in the Superman animated series, which, which tickled me because I, I loved both Batman animated and Superman animated. Um, and I think the Superman animated series is, you know, to me, really, along with the, you know, those old original Fleischer cartoons, it's just like the best Superman depiction ever. Um, so Kyle actually shows up. Friends about, uh, oh, go ahead. Kyle actually shows up in the Superman animated show in an episode, uh, but he he looks pretty much like Hal. He he's got brown hair and kind of more of a the traditional Green Lantern uniform. I've had conversations with friends about the uh, the Bruce Tim Paul Dini uh, animated series, and the, I've been yelled at for saying I think Superman the animated series is on par with Batman the animated series because apparently you're supposed to like one more than the other. Oh no! I think they're I think they're both brilliant. I they are. I, uh, I I love them, and and frankly, I love the the Legion of Superheroes uh, show that uh, they did afterwards that didn't last as long, certainly, but I thought was was really good as well. Um, the um, the distillation of of not just the the heroic characters, um, but also the villains in both the Superman and Batman shows, I thought was just terrific, uh, and I. I still feel like those shows are kind of the handbook to, to how you handle um, a lot of these characters in comics. It's funny, too, because in regards to animated stuff, everyone always goes on saying that 
DC is better than Marvel with animation. And I'm in agreement, but to be completely honest, DC has not been better than anyone in the last 10 years. But that's just my personal opinion. And I digress. Um, That's the end of my anecdote. Yeah, it's well, I think it's interesting that um, uh, obviously Marvel's movies, Marvel's um, cinematic universe has really become the standard by which everything else is judged. Um, whereas DC's uh, television series and animation has become the standard by which that stuff is judged. Uh, for some reason, just when I watch the uh, more recent animated movies that DC has been putting out, they're all set in that one universe, and they I guess they're the uh, New 52 era, which I'm a, I'm a fan of comics, and apparently, again, it's sacrilege if you like the New 52 in some aspects. I... I enjoyed what I read, and I was lucky to read, you know, enjoy what I read. But whatever. But well, it's, the, you know, the, look, it's, oh, as as I tell everybody, they're all just made up stories, man. Pick the ones you exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Listen. But you know, with the uh, animated stuff, it's just funny because it's I, I can't get behind them. There's you know, the voice direction is very flat. It's uh, you know, motionless, and it's got that wannabe anime art style to it that I just it doesn't click with me. But then you look at the you know the Tim uh, Tim and Dini universe stuff, and it still holds up to this day. The voice direction is fantastic, excellent stories. You know, it's like one of those what went wrong. Well, it's um, you know I think every generation kind of gets uh, gets the the comics or films or animation that um, that uh, have evolved from the previous generation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you had also mentioned the DC with television. They are firing on all cylinders with all the live-action stuff, especially the CW stuff. You know, you have that, then you have the uh, the DC Universe uh, app shows, which, you know, I'd be remiss to say if, without, you know, mentioning Doom Patrol, that's, in my opinion, the, one of the absolute best comic book television shows ever made. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an embarrassment of riches, obviously. Uh you know, I, I grew up in the era of uh, Lou Ferrigno painted green, yep, and uh, and Reb Brown on a motorcycle with a with a, a helmet with a blue helmet with wings painted on the side, and that was your Captain America. Uh, so you know the fact that um, it's become what it's become, and basically our culture has become the world's culture, uh, is kind of mind boggling when I step back and and really think about it. Uh, the, the fact that you know Marvel movies dominate the entire world, um, you know, we, it wasn't that long ago that the, the best Marvel movie you could you could hope for was you know Roger Corman doing a really cheesy Fantastic Four movie. I'll continue to say it, but isn't it funny that Groot is a household name? Yeah, well, I mean, geez, I, Thanos is a household name. Uh, yeah, you know, and and I certainly, I mean, I loved writing Thanos anytime I got the chance, and uh, and I, man, I stuck Thanos into every story that I could, uh, early in my career, uh, cosmic powers and secret defenders and all that stuff. I, you know, my, didn't matter what the question was. My answer was usually Thanos. Um, so the fact that we live in a world where, you know, Thanos is a, is a Saturday night live reference punchline, uh, just boggles my mind. I mean, I was, I was, in a, I, went to, I went to Nairobi, Kenya. To a uh, to a comic book convention last year, um, 
And, you know, so, so the first mind-blowing thing is the fact that I got to go to Nairobi, Kenya for a comic book convention. <laughs> That's mind-boggling, right? But then I get there, and, you know, like, there are, <clears throat> there are Kenyans walking around in Thanos t-shirts uh, at this convention. It's, it's, just, it's just insane, at, at, like, in my lifetime, how far this has come. One more, if we can, from uh, the yeah. Facebook, and that is from Martin Kinney. It's a multi-part question here, and it starts out with, Tony Isabella's recent comments on the current handling of Black Lightning. What are your views on how Kyle Rayner has been used in recent years and how attached to his work for higher characters are you, and is it hard to distance from them? Um. I mean, it's it, to a certain extent, it's hard to distance, but that's the bargain you make going in. Like when you create a character for Marvel or DC, uh, you know that it's not yours, uh, and you know that eventually you're you're going to give up your baby for adoption. Somebody else is going to raise your kid for a while, and you have to be okay with that. Um, look, I you know I understand that Tony is very protective of his character, but the the reality of it is is it's not yours. And, and the people that you sold that character to, because that's essentially what you do when you, when you make up a character in a, in a work for hire situation, you're, you're selling that character um, to the publisher. They will do what they will do what they see fit with uh, that character. So um, I am hugely thankful to DC for the opportunity of creating Kyle and the fact that Kyle is still around and still a vital part of the DC universe and the, and the, you know, and the larger green, the larger DC universe and the more specific green lantern universe. Um, you know, I'm hugely thankful, but I'm also not under the impression that Kyle is mine. Um, certainly there are storylines that have happened with Kyle that I wouldn't have written, but you know that going in, you know that that's the case, um, and you have to be okay with that. You have to let it go, or it just it's not um, it's not healthy, frankly. Uh, and you know, certainly, uh, it's the it's the flip side of the coin. Look, when I when I took over Green Lantern, and we turned Hal into, if not a villain, at least an antagonist, um, that upset a segment of the audience. Um, but as I would tell people then, these are just imaginary people. These are, you know, these are made-up people. Um, so to get that bent out of shape about made-up people doesn't make any sense to me, whether it's somebody you made up or not. Um, it's, uh, you know, you, you just have to have a little perspective on it. And, and I hope Tony is able to, you know, to come to a place where he's, He's got some perspective, and he's and he's okay with um, uh, he's okay with whatever happens with Black Lightning, um, because again, it it belongs to DC, and it's and it's great that um, the character has evolved and turned into um, you know a TV a TV show a TV star basically. Um, so uh, you know you have to be thankful uh, for all the good that comes with it, and if you're not happy with everything. Um, you take a step back and, and realize that uh, you don't get to make those decisions anymore. Last... And it was, it was interesting seeing the post about it originally, because I'm, I'm friends with Tony on Facebook, and one of the people that commented was Don McGregor, and Don is known as being the co-creator of Killmonger, 
and he brought up the point of, yeah, to be honest, I haven't really, you know, other than watching the Black Panther movie, I haven't really been exposed much to the Killmonger character since I worked on him. I, you know, pay no mind to it. They do what they do, and I'm over here. And, you know, I'm also hearing it in Don's voice as I'm reading it, but that's, you know, I digress. Mm. Yeah, you I don't know what to, the point of the story um, was. You have to... You have to maintain. Well, I guess you have to maintain your social distancing with that kind of stuff because uh, there's no there's no good answer for it other than you just have to accept it because uh, otherwise you're just making yourself crazy. I think Peter, your point was just to bring in the rest of that Black Panther and Killmonger reference was that you separate yourself as an artist or writer from the character and you move on. This is what you did at this time. Somebody else is doing it. You don't know what's going on. Imaginary, made up, all that. Yeah, it's fine. Killmonger is a and for those of us in this position, uh, you know, go, you can go make up a new character. Uh, there's, there are always more ideas or always more stories to tell. Um, concentrate on telling a story that you're, that you're going to be happy with rather than concentrating on a story that somebody else is telling that you're not happy with. Okay, last question also from Facebook, and it's, it's the last one from, uh, from Martin here. Ron, would you be interested in playing with the cross-genverse characters again if the opportunity arose? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, uh, like I said, I'm fairly proud of a lot of the work that we did at CrossGen, and it was overall a good experience. It didn't end well, but the experience itself um, and working on those books and, and really being responsible for those books um, uh, to a great extent uh, we, we didn't have editors, but the creative teams really uh, put those books together every month without any real supervision. Um, I, I would be more than happy to go back and, and play with those characters and those concepts because um, it didn't feel like we got, um, it didn't feel like we got a chance to, to pay off almost all of those stories that we did at CrossGen. The, the plug got pulled a lot sooner than uh, anybody had been had been estimating. Um, so most of the books, most of the books didn't end. They just stopped. Am I mistaken or did uh, Marvel buy out CrossGen? Uh, Disney bought CrossGen. Uh, okay. And this was, this was Disney pre-Marvel. This was Disney buying CrossGen for a few, a few specific properties uh, and getting the whole kit and caboodle because it was all being sold as a lot. Um, so um, Disney... Disney bought CrossGen, did some stuff, did some uh, sort of uh, jewel books, uh, kids' books with uh, a property called Abadazad that was by uh, James DeMattis and Mike Klug. And when those didn't kind of sell as, as they had hoped, they kind of shuttered the whole thing. Um, once they bought Marvel and uh, it was like, oh, we, we own this other comic library. Why don't you guys do something with it? So Marvel did a few sort of revamped cross-gen properties, um, but they were, they were revamped uh, into something different than what they had been at cross-gen, and they were, they were not familiar to the Marvel audience in general. So really it was, it was kind of neither fish nor fowl. Nobody, it, it was for an audience of kind of nobody, uh, and they didn't, they didn't do very well. Uh, and the stuff has just been languishing ever since. I, I don't know that... Um, that anybody at Disney even knows they own it anymore, um, because uh, for a while there were there were um, benefactors 
uh, and supporters of CrossGen at Marvel who were trying to, to get some stuff done. And actually, I had some discussions about maybe bringing some of that stuff back for certain projects. Um, those that didn't come to pass for a variety of reasons. Um, now that some of those people have moved on to other to other jobs within uh, within the overall Disney structure, uh, I'm not sure there's anybody uh, at Marvel who has particular affection for the cross-gen stuff. So if, uh, if anything were to ever happen with that stuff again, I think it would have to come from uh, the Disney arm, and I'm not sure who to even talk to at Disney about it uh, because it's just been... Um, it's just kind of been put in a drawer and forgotten about. Um, you know, at, at the very least, I hope at some point the um, the crush-in stuff can get back into print, even digitally. Um, even, you know, that, that to me is sort of like free money sitting there. Uh, they could put the, they could put the crush-in material up on Comixology um, and it's just, you know, it wouldn't be a huge revenue stream, but it's, it's money. It's money sitting there waiting to be made. So maybe that will happen, or uh, you can. I can dream about maybe uh, seeing some of that, uh, seeing some of the crush-in stuff done as omnibus volumes to get it all back into print. But that's uh, you know, that's way down the road, and uh, we'll see what happens. I, I would. Uh, I, I think there's enough of a of a of a fan base left from those early days that um, some of those probably properties could probably find an audience again. Ron Mars, want to thank you for the huge amount of time that you spent with us. We appreciate it as you continue to be busy, and that is such a good thing to hear in these times that we're all in now. And uh, again, for all you've done up to this point and continue to do, thank you again. Uh, no problem, guys. I'm, I'm uh, more than happy to do it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for putting up with my daily walk uh, while we had the first part of the conversation. I got my exercise in. Thank you, guys. Um, and uh, happy to do it any time. It's always a pleasure. That's great. And hopefully we'll see you sooner than later at a show when those all get back to whatever's going to be uh, normal. Yeah. Yeah, fingers crossed. I, you know, I, my, my convention schedule uh, was, was pretty packed for, for 2020, and now it's not very packed at all. As, you know, as more and more shows kind of, I think we're up to about September in terms of the shows getting, uh, getting either postponed to 2021 or just canceled outright. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see what happens. Hopefully, uh, hopefully some of the smaller, maybe more regional shows can start to, um, can start to open up and, um, get, get enough of an audience to make them worthwhile and still keep people at a, at a safe distance and make sure that, uh, uh, we're not spreading this thing any further than it already has been. Yeah, and in addition to seeing you at places like Hudson Valley, I know we've seen you at least more than, well, at least one time and Jim Starlin at, uh, Albany. Yeah, Albany is kind of my Albany is kind of my uh, my hometown show, so I'm always at that. And certainly, uh, the pr- the promoter at Albany uh, is a friend of mine. It's John Belskis, who owns uh, Excellent Adventures Comics in Boston Spa, and he's he's been dealing with this just like everybody else. You know, do I do I cancel the show? Do I postpone? Do I you know? So I I think his um, his show's been pushed back a couple of times, and now he's looking at uh, a November date for the next edition of the Albany Comic Con. And, you know, it'll probably be another month or two before a decision is really made as to whether that can go forward or not. And if the decision is made to go forward, okay, what does that mean? Do you sell 500 tickets for the day and, and cut off sales there so that the room doesn't get too packed? 
um, it's a you know it's a whole new paradigm of how we're going to uh, operate this. But I, I the one thing that I do know is that I think people people want this. People want to be out amongst each other. Um, people want to get their comics. People want new comics. Um, it's just a matter of um, of us collectively figuring out ways that all those things can happen, and we keep each other safe. Yep. In the meantime, Ron, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, the easiest spot is Twitter, where it's just at Ron Mars. That's where I'm probably most active because, you know, the window is the window is open on my laptop as I sit here and write scripts all day, um, and it's a it's a it's a good it's a good break for me during the day to, uh, you know, hop on Twitter and see what's going on. Uh, there's a, there's a Facebook page, which I believe is R- uh, Ron Mars comics, uh, which is actually kind of a fan account and run by, uh, run by somebody else than me, but I do check in on it and I do get messages from it. Um, it Mars. my website, uh, Ron Mars comics. And, uh, and my website is, uh, ronmars.com, which is, is due for a complete revamp. Um, soon, I think, because uh, obviously uh, we're not going anywhere, so I've got some time on my hands to maybe start monkeying with that. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Ron Mars. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! It's time for another marvelous edition of Obsessed with Marvel. Ron Mars is sticking around with us. Thank you again, Ron. Sure. We go straight to question 1,899. Armbar. Yeah, thanks, but I need a little more than that because why did I put the bookmark in the wrong spot? <laughs> hey, it's got to happen sooner or later. 2,500 questions? I mean, jeez. Okay, 1899 says, Good year. who is Lynn Michaels? And the choices are Diamond L, Lady Punisher, a New York City police detective, or all answers are correct. I got this. Who is Lynn Michaels? Diamond L, Lady Punisher, New York City police detective. All answers are correct. Oh, it's, it's got to be all answers are correct or that wouldn't be a choice. That's what I thought. Yes. All right, Peter. We know you're going to say the same thing. So letter D. Lady Punisher. That's correct. Only one quarter correct. Okay. Very good. We're off to a good start. For a change. Okay. 1,814. Shouldn't be too far flipping back here. All right. 1814. Terrible year. Who yeah. Who recreated Marvel Monsters to fight the Hulk in the Incredible Hulk Annual number 5 from 1976? Who recreated Marvel Monsters? Was it the High Evolutionary? Was it MODOK? Was it the Leader? Or was it Zemnu the Titan? Well, let's just like rule out Zemnu because he was one of the Marvel monsters. Zemnu um, was okay. Uh, I'm, let's go with. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with the High Evolutionary. Okay. Um, sure. Guess courtesy. What do you think, Pete? I'm I'm really not sure otherwise, but I would I would agree that no, not Zemnu. I was thinking the leader. Okay. Recreated Marvel. Mon- oh, yeah. Well, let's go with A and say High Evolutionary. No, <laughs> the answer is Zemnu the Titan. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we both dissed Zemnu, and look what happens. Okay. 
if we didn't remember so, that. So you will be inserting a sad trombone sound in there. <laughs> John, please include that. Please wah, include wah, that. Wah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Jeez. All right. Now let's try 505. And John, please include Spanish flea as we uh, set this up because I missed that. All right. Question number 505. Which of Spider-Man's adversaries nearly became his uncle? Oh, I think I have this. <laughs> Dr. Octopus, the Green Goblin, the Vulture, or the Black Fox? Does that need a reread? Uh, the Vulture. Wait, I'm going to reread this. Which of Spider-Man's adversaries nearly became his uncle? Dr. Octopus, the Green Goblin, the Vulture, the Black Fox. Ron, you're saying the Vulture? It's Doc I, I thought. I thought... There was there was a storyline where the vulture was was moving in on Aunt May, and then there was a later storyline with Doc Ock doing it. Um, Ooh, um, Doc Ock is really jumping out at me. Um, I mean, um, he was on the so, cover of a, of an issue so I, like with the yeah, you know, the wedding ceremony and everything. Right. I, so I, I'm I'm assuming the answer's got to be Doc Ock, but I think the vulture had had uh, maybe the vulture was more of a of a dating situation. And Doc Ock was more marriage material. Oh wow! Okay, I, I don't know which, where along what timeline the Vulture came into it because it's just not ringing any bells. Let's go with Doc Ock and say yes, that is correct. All right. How many wedding rings would he put on his tentacles? Oh, stop it! (laughs) Enough rings for that, and it's then it's ten rings, half the Mandarin. But okay, eight for Doc, I suppose. Four, six, six. There it is. Let's do one more and see how far we get. We're we're two for three. If I'm counting at all correctly. Okay, 1,472. And it says, who is Sam Stearns? Who is Sam Stearns? Speed Freak, Madman, The Leader, The Abomination. Sam Stearns. I like to say we all are. We all are Sam Stearns. Okay. Speed Freak, Madman, The Leader, The Abomination. Um, I have no idea, so it's going to be a guess. Um, mm. um, 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 I'm, I'm between Speed Freak and Madman myself, but... Uh, I, let's, let's, go with, let's go with Madman. Okay, Peter, any idea? What he said. What he said. Let's try his letter B. Madman. No, the answer is the leader. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I I figured the I figured the the uh, re- repetition of the name, uh, Peter oh. Parker. Oh, oh, the, oh, yeah. Otto indicated Octavius. that it was indicated that it was a it was a more heroic character, not not a <laughs> a very unpleasant fellow like the like the leader. Appreciate you sitting in with us and for the audience who are going through the questions again, obsessed with Marvel. Thank you. Well, sorry, sorry, we only batted 500. I guess that that still gets us up, still gets us into the Hall of Fame, which is about an hour from my house. We get another at bat next time. <laughs> <laughs>